Hello, and welcome to the American Writers Museum podcast, where we bring the power of the written word straight to your ears. Last week, American Writers Museum program director Allison Sansoni talked with screenwriter and comics writer J. Michael Straczynski. This week, journalist Dan Sinker talks with Annalee Newitz about Annalee's recent time-traveling punk rock novel, The Future of Another Timeline. We hope you enjoy entering the mind of a writer. So tonight we're excited to welcome Annalee Newitz and Dan Singer to talk about Annalee's new novel, The Future of Another Timeline. Annalee writes fiction and nonfiction about the intersection of science, technology, and culture. Annalee's first novel, Autonomous, won the Lambda Literary Award and was nominated for the Nebula and Locus Awards. Their book, Scatter, Adapt, and Remember, was nominated for the LA Times Book Award. They're currently a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times and we're the founding editor of io9. Annalie is also the co-host of the Hugo Award-winning podcast, Our Opinions Are Correct, and was the recipient of a Knight Science Journalism Fellowship at MIT. Here to talk with Annalie tonight is Dan Sinker, founder of Punk Planet, groundbreaking author of the Mayor Emanuel Twitter account, and the book, The Fucking Epic Twitter Quest of Mayor Emanuel. He's also the co-host of the podcast Says Who and The Hitch, and recently man ran the most lucrative candle fundraiser on Kickstarter. Welcome to both of you. So I'm going to do a little reading, and then Dan is going to join me, but if you want to wave to Dan, he's right there. Um, <clears throat> Dan was actually um, one of my very first bosses, I guess. He was an ed- Yeah, he was my editor. He published my first cover story when I went um, undercover to the Promise Keepers March on Washington, which you guys hopefully have all forgotten. Um, but I dressed as a dude, and I prayed with the men to um, oppress women. So thanks, Dan. <laughs> um, so this is a book about time travel, uh, and it's about two women who are um, both kind of main characters. And um, one of them is named Tess, and she is a geologist who is a time traveler. And uh, geology is the science of time travel because science machine, uh, because uh, time machines have been discovered in ancient rock formations. So geology kind of becomes the field uh, that studies it. And uh, Tess and her colleagues um, are on a mission to um, change history, even though in academia it's considered kind of gauche to try to change history. One doesn't really do that. Um, one just goes and observes history. Um, and they're, they discover that they're in an edit war with a group uh, over the timeline with a group of men's rights activists who've deleted abortion rights from U.S. history. Um, so the other main character is a girl named Beth, uh, who is um, a riot girl in the early 90s, and she's stuck in time. She's having to live through high school and deal with a lot of crap. Um, And she's got kind of an abusive family, and uh, also she's living in this timeline where abortion is illegal. And her friends decide it's a really awesome idea in the name of riot girl feminism to just start murdering rapists, um, as you do. So uh, Tess is trying to stop that from happening, but what I'm going to read to you tonight, I'm going to kind of introduce you to Tess, the time traveler, um, uh, where she is going, um, and one of the places she goes is to Chicago. So I, just because I'm here in Chicago and I sit so much of this book in Chicago, I'm just psyched to read to you all about Chicago, but we're going to start where it all begins with Tess going on her first mission. My first mission in the book. Drums beat in the distance like an amplified pulse. People streamed over the dirt road. 
leather boots laced to their knees, eyes ringed in coal, ears and lips studded with precious metals. Some gathered in an open square below the steep path to the amphitheater, making a bonfire out of objects stolen from their enemies. The smoke reeked of something ancient and horrific. Materials far older than humanity were burning. A rusty sunset painted everyone in blood, and shrieks around the flames mixed with faraway chanting. It could have been Rome under Nero. It could have been Samarkand when the Sogdians fled. It could have been Ataturk's new Istanbul or a feast day in Chaco Canyon. The technologies were industrial, Neolithic, and medieval. The screams were geochronologically neutral. I paused, smelling the toxins, watching a woman with jet black lips and blue hair pretend to eat a spider. One of her companions laughed. Michelle, you are so gross. This isn't an Aussie concert. They paused at the ticket booths to flip off the vice fighters, a gang of conservative protesters waving signs covered in Bible quotes. Some of them were burning CDs in a garbage can, and the stench of melting plastic formed a noxious bubble around their demonstration. The machine had not delivered me to an ancient war, nor to an anti-imperialist celebration. I was at Irvine Meadows Amphitheater in 1992, deep in the heart of Orange County, Alta, California. Soon, I'd be seeing one of the greatest punk bands of the decade, but I wasn't here for history tourism. Somewhere in this rowdy concert crowd, a dangerous conspiracy was unfolding. I needed to find out who was behind it. If these bastards succeeded, they would destroy time travel, locking us into one version of history forever. I bought a lawn seat and raced up the winding pedestrian walkway to the seating area, lurid with stadium lights. Spotlights sent a cluster of beams racing around the stage. Grape Apes lead singer Glorious Garcia strutted out alone, sequins on her tattered skirt shimmering in the glare. She let out a furious howl. Hola, bitches! If anyone called you a slut today... I want you to say it with me. Slut! 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 All around me, women joined the chant. They wore battered combat boots, shredded jeans, and wrecked dresses. They had tattoos and black nail polish and looked like warrior queens from another planet. Tangled hair flashed in every possible artificial color. You sluts are beautiful! Glorious fisted the air and aimed her mic at the crowd, still chanting, Slut! 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 Back when I went to this concert for the first time, I was an angry 16-year-old with too many piercings for suburbia, wearing a military jacket over a 1950s dress. Now, I was 47 on the books, and 55 if you count travel time. So, if you are a sci-fi nerd who likes time travel, you may have noticed a little paradox was developing there because she's going to a concert that she already went to one time. So her paths are going to cross with this person, Beth, who she has some kind of connection with, who she knew as a teenager. Um, And that's her very secret mission. She's trying to change something in her own past, having to do with murdering dudes. 
Um, but her real mission is that she's going back to Chicago to the Columbian Exposition in 1893 to intervene in a very famous showdown that happened on the midway here. So this is a real story in our real actual timeline, not the alternate history in this book. Um, a very powerful moralist named Anthony Comstock, um, he had already um, enacted a number of laws expanding obscenity uh, to cover a lot of um, areas that it hadn't covered before. So obscenity law kind of had started out covering sort of erotica and pornography, but under Comstock's um, uh, shepherding, uh, he had gotten obscenity laws changed so that they covered um, uh, information about birth control, actual items of birth control, information about abortion. So he was basically turning kind of feminism and reproductive rights into obscenity. And he heard about how here in Chicago on the Midway, there were women who were doing belly dancing that was very obscene. So he came to Chicago, again, this is all real life, to shut down the Midway using the courts. So he visited some of the acts on the Midway, um, and he tried to do it. And the good city of Chicago was like, first of all, no fucking New York dude coming here trying to shut down our stuff. And also, the Midway was the only part of the World's Fair that made any money. So there's the whole white city thing that you've probably heard about a million times, the kind of respectable side of the World's Fair. Made no money at all. The Midway, with all the dancing girls and the beer and all the cheap tchotchkes you could buy, that was where the money came from. And the city of Chicago was like, no way are we going to get this shut down. Like, this is how we're making, this is how we're making cash. Um, so... In our timeline, Comstock was basically defeated here. But in the timeline in the book, he wasn't. He manages to shut down the midway. So Tess has gone back to try to organize with the belly dancers, try to meet the belly dancers, and see if she can intervene. So this is what happens. She gets to the midway. I took a right turn, and there it was, the midway, its landscape rough and scarred by carriage wheels. I avoided puddles of liquefied manure and passed between exhibits that looked like villages jumbled together from various locations around the world. Java, Germany, the Ottoman Empire, Japan, Austria, Samoa, Egypt. Many of the concessions were still skeletal. Ahead of me loomed the monumental Cairo Street exhibit, a walled-in world of restaurants, shops, theaters, and bazaars that merged to form a colonial hallucination of various cities in the Maghreb. Men with hammers climbed all over Cairo Street's hulking Luxor temple. Others were erecting two plinths covered in hieroglyphs for full pseudo-authenticity. I poked my head around the corner from the Luxor and found a side street with one building whose slightly faded awnings gave it a lived-in appearance. Topped by gilded domes and covered in rows of bright tiles, it had a plain marquee that read, Algerian Theater. In <clears throat> another sign helpfully elucidated, performance every hour, dancing girls. A fountain stood outside, beautifully painted, full of murky rainwater. It sounded like people were drumming inside, but I couldn't be sure. I was turning to leave when two women materialized in the shadows of the entrance. One was tall and pale, rolling a cigarette with tobacco she'd pulled from a tiny pouch hidden in her skirts. The other was short, her jet black hair wound into braids around her brown face. 
She wore a man's wool overcoat to cover her costume, visible only as a few metallic tassels against her thick black stockings. The tall one called out to me, You here for the audition? No, I was just passing by. I tried to sound casual, like somebody who wasn't desperate for a job. The one in the wool coat gave me an appraising look and grinned. I like your knickerbockers. Want to smoke? I did. I'm a seal, and this is Sophronia. Everybody calls me Soph. I'm Tess. Are you guys dancers? I'm a dancer. My stage name is Lady Asenath. But I'm also a translator and pretty much everything else, including the manager for the fellow who brought this troop over from Africa. A seal made a grand gesture, like she was showing off a palace full of treasures. Soph handed me a tightly rolled cigarette. I'm a journalist, she said. Did you know this is the first time these traditional dances have been seen in America? It's incredible. I'm working on a story about it. I took a drag and tried not to choke. 19th century tobacco is really intense. What else do you write about? Well, mostly I write pamphlets about how I'm fucking an angel. I've heard a lot of weird things in my 25 years of travel, so it was easy to keep my tone conversational. Um, what kind of angel? I don't mean a real angel. The goddess wouldn't take physical form like that. But I teach women about family health and the marriage bed, and it helps if they can tell their husbands that they're reading spiritualist tracts. A seal broke in. I ordered one of her newsletters when I was having woman problems back in Arizona, and then when I came to Chicago, the first thing I did was call on her. The two women looked at each other and giggled. You look like a new woman, Soph raised her eyebrows. What do you do? Actually, I'm looking for work. But you don't dance? A seal was dubious. Can you do mending? We're desperate for a seamstress. Sure I can. Soph did a little pirouette. Wonderful, delightful. It's as if the goddess herself brought you to us. I grinned and nodded. This was an incredible stroke of luck. I'd landed a job in the exact place where Comstock would try to crush women's rights in just a few months. Should I do a little more, Dan, or are you? Okay. <laughs> you want to hear a little bit more about Chicago belly dancer culture? All right. So basically, she becomes good friends with a seal, and she's trying to um, uh, continue to um, thwart these uh, men's rights activists who are changing the timeline, who are hanging out with Comstock. Um, but along the way, she kind of doesn't notice a lot of the real politics that are happening at the Midway. She's really focused, Tess is really focused on kind of, um, on her reproductive rights issues, and she's not particularly aware of, of a lot of other things. And so this is a scene where <clears throat> she kind of learns a little bit about um, what's really kind of at stake uh, on the Midway. And so she's been... Um, yeah, so she's been working at the Algerian theater, and at one point, a seal comes in and says to her, you have to come to the Persian palace right now. She's seething. So the Persian palace is one of the other dance halls that's right across the way. I raced across the street with her. Unlike the Algerian village, the Persian palace made no pretense of being what Saul, their boss, would call cultural. A barker stood outside on a wooden chair, his hat cocked jauntily. Arabia makes the most beautiful dark-eyed dancing girls, he yelled. Looking to see some oriental jewels, fellas? 
He gave a broad wink to a pack of college students milling eagerly outside, waiting for the late-night show. We plunked down 50 cents each and pushed our way through, despite the ticket-taker's half-hearted attempt to block our way. As soon as we got inside, I could see why they'd tried to stop us. There were no women in the audience at the Persian Palace. The place was decorated in feathers, glitter, and mirrors, like a standard burlesque theater. Still, as we jostled for seats, I saw nothing around me but the usual crowd of mostly drunk men looking for something they could fantasize about later. Why are we here? I looked at a seal. Wait and see. She looked like she was ready to kill someone. Stage lights flared and the show began. A white woman minced out on stage, wearing the flowing skirts of an Algerian dancer and the lacy corset of an American showgirl. Her blonde curls flowed around a scarf that had been knotted awkwardly over her mouth and nose, a poor imitation of the already ridiculous veils we had made for our show. Then the music started. It was the same tune that their boss, Saul Bloom, had written. This is actually a true thing. Saul Bloom wrote the song that you've probably heard before that goes da 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 So that was written for the Midway Dancers. So in this show... They're using that song, they've taken Saul's song, but they've added some supposedly funny dance hall lyrics. There's a place in France where the women go to dance, and the dance they do was written by a Jew, but the Jew couldn't dance, so they kicked him in the pants. The dancer did some high kicks and tore off her veil, revealing a Caucasian face slashed with rouge. She moved her hips back and forth in an awful imitation of a seal's act. Cheers hammered us. The men stamped their feet on the sticky floor. A seal dragged me back outside, her nails digging into my arm until we were leaning on the wall beneath fake Egyptian pyramids. They stole our show! They stole our song! People will think that stupid cunt is Lady Asenath! Nobody who saw our show would mix it up with that garbage. Everybody will! So they're fighting and they're having this debate. And then they see a couple of Comstockers that they know are part of the conspiracy. They go chase after them, and they find out that they're going to bring um, Comstock to the fair and that they're going to get the lady managers to help them. The lady managers were basically at the, at the uh, expo. They were basically the embodiment of the worst aspects of white feminism. It was just a group of rich white women who built a, um, a building in the, in the fancy white city area um, and uh, kind of tried to promote women's entrepreneurship. Um, and they did, in fact, team up with, with Comstock to try to shut down the Midway. And so Tess keeps saying to seal, we need to go get to the lady managers first and try to get them on our side. seal was angry. Look, I know you're on this traveler mission to stop Comstock, and I'm with you, but I can't go back to some fancy future like you can, Okay. I have to think about what's happening right now. I can't imagine those Comstock, Comstock bumpkins coming up with a foolproof plan to stroke their own cocks. They're idiots. I'm less worried about the lady managers shutting us down than I am about losing business if everybody is copying my dance. But we have the jump on those guys. If we can get to the lady managers first, maybe they'll ally with us and we can fight the Comstockers together. You aren't hearing me, Tess. A seal world to face me. Didn't you understand what you saw at the Persian palace? Not all women are your allies. You know that, right? We have to protect the Algerian village. 
It was like we were defending a little town in the Maghreb against the Alexandrian army. I wondered, not for the first time, if I had been traveling for too long. Times bleed together in my mind. But maybe that's because there are always villages being ground to a pulp by somebody else's war. I hung my head. Okay, I'm sorry, you're right. You should write your own lyrics. Saul could sell them for a nickel outside the theater. What are you going to write the song about? I think it should be about those two little sad Comstockers. They'll never enjoy anything. They'll never see the hoochie-coochie. She wiggled her hips, imitating the Persian palace dancer, imitating her. Wait, what the hell is the hoochie-coochie? You haven't heard? That's what they're calling the danse du ventre. Soph is really peeved about it, but I don't mind. Hoochie-coochie. It sounds like being tickled. I laughed. It also sounds a little naughty. Well, I'd be disappointed if it didn't. Thanks. All right, we had some hoochie-coochie. We sure have. We had some appropriation. We're ready for the World's Fair. We have a lot of things on a very small stool. <laughs> this will go well. Plus water, so I'm going to crack um, this open. Thank you for having me. I've been sitting on this book for like three months now, and I'm like, this is the best book. I can't wait for it. Like, I'm, I'm personally invested in this book by, were, by a lot. You were an early consultant I was book. really yeah. excited. Um, and I want to actually talk um, quite a bit about how you approach writing it, but I feel... How many people have read the book? It just came out, and it's kind of long, so most of you haven't. I feel like to get into... Um, the process of making it, we actually first have to talk about the time machines. Yeah. And I feel like we have to talk about the time machines for two reasons. One, I fucking love your time machines. <laughs> and two, um, to understand a lot of the logic of the book, you actually have to understand the time machine. And, like, yeah, tell, tell them about the time machines because they're so good. Okay, so where do I start? So um, mostly what I was talking to you about in this reading was sort of how the characters are interacting with history. And so that's a big part of the book is them trying to think through how to change history, where you would go if you wanted to change history. But there's also a whole part of their jobs that's that's sort of scientific. And um, what they do is deal with these machines that no one really understands the origin of. And so when I started this book, I had this idea that um, because I'm a science journalist, I would write these really accurate time machines. And uh, so I called up Sean Carroll, who is a physicist who writes a lot about space and time, mostly about time. Um, He has a new book out, actually, about the origins of space-time. And he said, "Um, nope, there's never going to be a time machine. We're never going to travel in time. It's impossible. It's just not a thing. So you can't be scientific, but that doesn't mean you can't have scientists who are taking an approach to these impossible things that resemble exactly the way physicists would approach this, and in this case, geophysicists. So basically, there are these wormholes that exist in ancient rock formations, and you open the wormholes, which are passages into the past, as far as we know. We can only go to the past. You open them by pounding on the rock with more rocks. So this is a thing that humans have been doing for a long time. We're actually, like, 
pretty much optimized to pound rocks together. That's one thing I'm really confident that humans can do, <laughs> have been doing for a long time. So we know that people have been messing around with these machines for thousands and thousands of years. The timeline has never been pure. There's no such thing as undisturbed history. And eventually, when uh, we have a written record from antiquity, uh, we start to see people describing these, these portals um, in, the, in the context of magic, kind of the way um, in our world um, astronomy has been approached, where in the classical world we see people observing the stars and the planets and recording what they see and kind of describing them in the context of cosmology and gods, um, but they're still gathering data. They're still gathering data that later scientists can use to say, oh, they're tracking the motion of this celestial body, and actually that turns out to be Jupiter. Um, and so, and that turns out to be a planet, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what they're doing with time machines. When eventually geologists come along, they're like, oh, we have all of this kind of random data from societies that have been traveling in time and messing around with history, um, and now we're going to approach it scientifically. So they design these machines to do very precise tapping on the rocks that they call tappers, um, and they can sort of refine exactly where they're going to go in history. Um, and the machines become kind of the purview of academics and spies um, and also insurance agents. There's actually an insurance agent character who works for a company that um, you know, would rather have her go back and save someone's life than actually pay out on the insurance policy. So part of what you're paying for with the insurance policy is, is just that you won't die so that you won't ever get any money. Um, and so, uh, so the main problem with having a heavily edited timeline is that you have to come up with limitations because otherwise everybody's just going to be changing shit constantly, as someone pointed out to me when I had the bright idea to have an, an edited timeline that, that everyone could access. Um, so one of the things I came up with was that the wormhole will only open for people who've been in the close vicinity of one of these machines for about four years. And there's a long, nerdy explanation in the book for why those four years Because exist. it's also important to point out the machines are they're fixed in... Place. Space, yes. Yeah, they don't go anywhere. You have to go to them. Yes, you have to go to them. They're in these ancient shield rock formations. So our closest machine is in Flin Flon, Manitoba. I'm sure you've all heard of Flin Flon. Um, one of my cousins was born in Flin Flon, so she was pretty psyched. Um, and, uh, but it's way up in, it's on the border between Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And just to screw with my Saskatchewan relatives, I, I put the machine on the Manitoba side. So they were like, mm. <laughs> Saskatchewan never got a time machine. Um, so, but part of the problem then is if you travel back to the 19th century, it's really a pain in the ass to get up to Northern Canada. So it takes them weeks and weeks to kind of get to the machine using canoes and things like that, uh, and trains. And, um, and so part of the book is sort of about how, what it's like to have technology that's so advanced that it's part of nature and what happens when you have to kind of use nature as a machine. You can't just dig the machine out and take it somewhere. It's this piece of the earth's crust. Um, and so there's only five of these machines that they know of, and they're all in these sort of shield rock formations that are about half a billion years old. Um, and no one knows what they're from, there's some hypotheses, but it's, it's just like the cosmos itself. You know, we can, make, we can make educated, you know, hypotheses about where the universe came from or why time happens the way it does, um, but we ultimately don't know. So it's just this kind of weird aberration. 
I don't know. Is that enough of an ex? That was my yes. Long. I didn't. I didn't give you. The I footnotes. could literally sit and listen to the time <laughs> machines forever. Um, so with that, you have this idea of a moldable past, and you're telling a story that takes place that follows two people, and to oversimplify, kind of takes place in 1893 and 1992, you know, with a lot of jump backs with the person who's in 1893. So you've got two parallel timelines that are actually intersecting and influencing each other. You've got these wild time machines. You have, like, how did you hold all of this in your head? I don't understand. I don't understand. Having just finished writing a very straightforward novel and holding all that, I have no fucking clue how you held all of this in your head. I mean, I just had a big document where I was tracking <laughs> all the timelines. I didn't actually build the like crazy kind of like bulletin board with all of conspiracy the conspiracy wall. You know, yeah. yeah, the conspiracy wall. Yeah. Exactly. I did not have the conspiracy wall. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of world building and, and taking notes. So it's yeah. weird to have. It's an alternate history that's also a secret history because most people don't know a lot of the historical stuff that's in the book. There's a helpful index at the end to tell you everything that's real. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, it was very, um, it was very hard. I, I have a question for you though. Yeah. Because you've written a pretty elaborate alternate history of yes. Chicago. Um, why, why does Chicago <laughs> so, cause these yeah. weird alternate histories? It's, I mean, so I was, uh, yeah, there are two things in this book that I love a lot. One of them is Chicago. The other is punk rock. Um, <laughs> and both of them, like we'll get back to Chicago, but this idea of secret histories, right? Like there's a total, you, you dive so far into this secret history of the world's Columbian exposition, which most people know from another history of the world's Columbian exposition, the devil in the white city. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and yet there's all of this really interesting stuff that you begin to delve into. And because it's not super well known, there were certainly moments where I was like, wait, this happened or did this not happen? And, and, like and I and I know a lot about Chicago history, and I was still like, which parts of this are real, and which parts aren't? <laughs> and yet, then in punk rock, you have all of these Easter eggs in there of people that are in the wrong bands and things like that. That it's like, oh, I'm reading a different timeline than the one I'm in, but this, you know. And then I start to realize, like, oh, this is probably the same thing throughout all of these little bits and threads. So, like, how many different like geek level <laughs> fan Easter eggs are hidden in this book and how many different kind of fan worlds do they intersect with? It's a good question. Um, I actually have forgotten all of the Easter eggs in the book. I am certain I bet. there's a lot, like I would just, <laughs> I would get to a point and I would just be like, Oh, I'm going to throw that in. No one's going to get that. So at some point I am going to collect them all. There are a lot of weird punk rock references. There are. And one of the, actually, one of the main ideas I had for this alternate history was it kind of started with this thought experiment where I was like, huh, when I was in the Riot Girl scene, um, there were all of these, I was in the, the San Francisco Bay Area, and there were lots and lots of women of color in the scene um, and who were in really amazing bands. But, like, the bands that became really big and really popular were all fronted by white women. And kind of like that Persian Palace chick, maybe a little bit. 
um, but not quite as horrible, um, and with not with the anti-Semitic lyrics and stuff. Um, but I was like, okay, what would have had to change in history for the bands in the Riot Girl scene to be the really popular, famous bands to be fronted by women of color. So I invented this band, Grape Ape, which is an all-Latina band, the ones who were screaming at you at the beginning about being awesome sluts. Um, and I decided that the way that you would get a Riot Girl scene that was intersectional was if women had gotten the vote at the same time as freed slaves in 1870. So this is a timeline where women do not have as many reproductive rights, but they got the vote much earlier, like basically two generations earlier, and they got it at the same time as freed slaves. So feminism remained a much more intersectional movement. You don't have that breakage where you get the really hideous white feminism and um, sort of everybody else. And um, so then I was like, okay, well, maybe that would change pop culture to have like all of these bands in a totally different configuration. And that was just, I decided that would be where I would go back to, to change things. I have no idea if that's how it would really work. <laughs> um, but that seemed to me like a good start. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of, and so as a result of this, not only do we have an intersectional riot girl scene, but Tim Burton made, um, Wonder Woman movies in the nineties instead of Batman movies. So <laughs> Um, so that's a relief, right? <laughs> that's one of the Easter eggs. <laughs> I had forgotten about that one. Um, yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> coming back to Chicago. Yes, coming back to yeah. Chicago. Why? Why is it so? Why is history so weird here? Is Be- there a, is there a portal here? Well, in my book, there's a portal on the roof of City Hall, so that could be. Um, but. Uh, I'm I'm actually curious because you're not from Chicago. I'm from Irvine, so there's yeah. an alternate. There's Irvine a lot of Irvine in this book, in this book yeah. too. Um, <laughs> you know, there it feels like there are a number of points in our historical record that you could have kind of inserted in an edit, right? And you chose this one. Like, what was appealing about the World's Columbian Exposition of '93 that you were like, you know what, this is where I want to hook the book in. I mean, I was really, I was really interested in Anthony Comstock. And so, and this was a place where he had this showdown and it was a showdown, which was led by, um, musicians and dancers who were largely immigrants and women of color. And so it kind of fit with my theme of like, how do you imagine a music scene, which isn't, um, where, where the most popular bands or the most widely recognized bands, um, aren't just whiteies, um, And so that really appealed to me. But also Chicago is such an amazingly interesting city. I mean, this was also a period in history when anarchist politics and union politics were like surging. It was one of the wealthiest cities. Um, It was a center of transit. Um, There was just so much going on that it seemed like it was this kind of pivotal historical um, region. And of course, there's like a lot of people who are urban nerds, um, I've read um, William Cronin's book about Chicago, which is all about how um, Chicago isn't just a city, it's also all of the countryside around it. And so it's this kind of agglomeration of of agriculture and urbanism at the same time, which I think is really, like I said, as a city nerd, I think is super interesting. So I don't know, what is it? You're the Chicago person. (laughs) I mean, so I think it's appealing to me it's appealing as a place 
because it is actually fairly like you can edit it. Right? I mean, like, yeah, it's not New York that has 7000 stories written about it. And it's just like you can literally like follow New York from the founding to now in fiction and just like have the whole thing. And, and you know, there's enough history in Chicago that everyone kind of knows it. Right. And there are enough colorful characters throughout that history that it's easy to kind of put drop them in and be like, cool, we're hanging out with this person now, mm-hmm. right? Um, yet it's also, I mean, we're flyover country, right? Like, I live here, but it, and it sucks, but we are. And so it's also very easy to insert your story into that because it it isn't as known, it isn't as told as other places, mm-hmm. is, is my theory on it. Yeah, so it is kind of its own secret history, in a sense. Yeah. There's a secret city here, um, yeah. which is interesting, because it is such a powerful part of U.S. history, and to have that be part of its, you know, to have it be so unwritten is, I mean, it is kind of exhilarating. Yeah. Um, but it also does mean that, you know, people have forgotten about all the really important shit like the belly dancers on the midway um, and punk rock. And like, yeah. you know, they just remember the fancy ass white city and like that dude who killed a bunch of women, like whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All that stuff is made up anyway. I was so glad that, can I tell he doesn't. Oh yeah. I was no. glad that he doesn't appear. He's in the not book. in the book. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm there was only a interested where I was like, in... fuck, he's showing up. And then no. I was like, wait, he's not showing up. It's only teenage it. girls murdering male rapists. Yeah. yeah. So that's all that goes on. <laughs> that's all. <laughs> there is killing. There is some killing. Um, just some mild, killing. mild killing, yeah. but they have it coming to them. You know, they're, they're, uh, they're bad guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this idea that we can change history, right? Um, Which is the ultimate conceit of the book. Um, Feels heavily rooted in the now, right? Um, And I'm curious about kind of, were you thinking about time and all of that prior to the election of 2016? Or is this heavily oriented toward the shit show that we live in now? Um, So I started, I started working on the book in 2016. um, And I had actually, for many years before that, I had been toying with the idea of doing an alternate history where the only difference between our history and this alternate history was that abortion was not legal in the United States. Um, And it seemed to me as I was conceiving of this many, many years ago, that it was obvious that if abortion weren't legal in the United States, there would be a group of teenage girls murdering rapists. Um, It just seemed (laughs) natural that that would happen. Um, You know, it's an extreme situation, so um, you'd have to take extreme measures. And so I was was really interested in that scenario and what would make that scenario come to pass. And then I, when I actually sat down to write the book, I was like, oh, it has to be time travel because I just wanted to make things even more bizarro and (laughs) difficult. Um, But it is true that, um, I will say one thing, is that after Trump's election, um, I was in the middle of writing the book, um, and I had originally intended for the book to be very dark and pessimistic. And originally, um, the characters were not going to be able to change history. It was just going to end with them 
with total futility and they'll have had had this whole adventure. (laughs) That was going to be my big lesson for you. Um, (laughs) And then I watched the world changing so fast in real time. And I was like, actually, no, that's not even realistic. Like history can change really dramatically, really quickly. Um, And I also wanted to tell a hopeful story. I wanted to tell a story about how people can suffer setbacks and, um, and really, really horrific things and still be resilient and still find allies and change things um, slightly for the better. Um, and, um, and the one other thing that changed in the book was um, I had originally really not, I had just tried to scale the murders back. Like, I love gross movies, but, and I love kind of gross stuff, but I was like, you know, not everybody likes that. So I tried to have kind of ch- chill murders. <laughs> um, and then I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings and I was like, got to put in some more murder. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I, there's one extra murder I threw in just for, for Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and, uh, and the murders are not, you know, I should say like, it is kind of a trigger warning, but it, they are very short and they're mostly off screen, but they, they do have to happen. Cause you know, these, there's predators out there and sometimes you got to stick your thumbs in their eyeballs. (laughs) There's in this, on the theme of not just sort of changing history, but also on the theme of like deciding, Oh, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't write a bleak book right now, which I love. (laughs) Um, there's sort of a meditation, like two thirds of the way through on kind of does history change by collective action or by kind of individual, like the great man theory, right? And it's such an, it comes at such an interesting point in the book because we're, you know, we've been following these characters enough and we've seen enough change now, right? And then suddenly you kind of pop us out and you bring us into this sort of, I mean, literally like a professor sitting down with a student being like, well, this is, you know, let me talk to you about this. And, um, And it's so interesting to see that that then play out as, as without without revealing too much. But I'm just curious about kind of how you, as you thought, okay, we're going to have an editable history. You know, we're going to have, you know, I mean, there's also a whole bunch of like, there are so many parts of this book that are like, I am the Venn diagram in the center <laughs> of the nerdery that this book exists. But there's a lot about... Um, essentially about version control and like merge errors and things like that. Um, and I'm curious about kind of as you like that debate that happens in that room feels almost like a debate that you were having about like, how, how do we resolve this stuff? Like, is it individual? Is it collective? Like, and how much of that is part of what you were trying to kind of get through in the book? Um, it was definitely, I mean, so it really is true that there's, this is the kind of book where there's actually a scene where someone goes to a professor's office hours and like asks questions. Um, because one of, because Beth really wants to go to college. And so when she gets to college, she's like, yes, I can go to office hours. Um, which is really just me. (laughs) Um, so I was thinking a lot about what I really wanted this book to be was kind of thinking about how, um, you know, there's the scientific aspect to time travel and there's also a cultural aspect to it. And so the cultural side is how do you change history? And that's not a scientific question. You can't, 
Um, even in this book, you can't sort of run through multiple versions of history and kind of do experiments and say like, well, but what if we take this out or put this in? The characters have done that, and so they do have a lot of hypotheses that are more sophisticated than the ones we have in our timeline uh, among us in this world where we don't edit history, um, where, we, where we don't literally edit history. Um, so I, I wanted the characters to be debating, like, do you change history by getting a big group of people together to to transform things? Or can it be like just a dude comes along like Anthony Comstock and makes a bunch of laws? And in fact, there were these laws, the Comstock laws that were on the books um, really until the 1970s in a lot of states um, that were preventing people from buying birth control or ordering sex toys through the mail and things like that, um, getting information about abortion. And so... The characters are kind of not sure. I mean, the the main characters believe in collective action. And they believe that the reason why... One of the conceits of the book is that it's really hard to change history. If you go back and, like, kill Hitler, you just get, like, Bittler or Zittler or Mittler (laughs) because of the fact that Hitler represented a social movement. It wasn't just the one guy. It was, like, this whole movement of white supremacy and um, and it wasn't going to just go away if you got rid of the one bad guy. Um, and so as a result of knowing that, um, these characters decide, okay, the only way you can change things is to affect that social movement, which is why Tess goes back and is like, I got to hang out with all these belly dancers because I can't, I can't just shoot Anthony Comstock. That's not going to do any good. Um, but then there's all these hints that maybe there are some people who are kind of important. Um, in the book, like Comstock is kind of a flashpoint for these men's rights activists. And um, the feminists are, they're in a group called the Daughters of Harriet because uh, Harriet Tubman becomes a senator after women are are given the vote. So Senator Tubman is this really important, influential figure, uh, even more than in our own timeline, um, where of course she was incredibly crucial to our, our history. Um, and so it's, it's this, it's a debate. Like it's, we just don't ever, we can't fully know. Um, but the book definitely, um, it's about collective action. And, and I was reading LA Kaufman's book, Direct Action, like shortly before I wrote it. And so it's kind of just my like love letter to that book. Like if you've ever, (laughs) if you want to read a really great short book about what direct action is, which is sort of extra legal action to change laws and to change the world, Highly recommend um, L.A. Kaufman's direct action. Amazing. Should we? Thank you so much, yeah. Emily. Yeah. Thanks, and Dan. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of the American Writers Museum podcast. Tune in next week for more science fiction with prolific writer John Scalzi, author of The Consuming Fire, among many others. Now go, be inspired and find the mind of a writer in yourself.